Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Well, good morning. It is a pleasure and a blessing to be back again. Very encouraged. Uh, when I first got here, a brother came up to me and said, I think I was here back maybe in July or August, and he said, uh, I really, really appreciate the sermon you preached last time you were here, and he, and, and, and he named it to me. He said, you know, Ephesians 5 on, you know, loving the church. And I was like, amazing. I don't remember what I preach. <laughs> but he did, and that was, really, that was really encouraging. I mean, the word of God is very powerful. Um, and so it is indeed a great blessing to be back. It's a privilege to preach the word of God to anybody, anytime, and certainly to ourselves. Well, let's, let's pray, and let's dig into Ephesians chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we know that without the power of your spirit working, uh, Lord, this, this will be just an exercise of of somebody preaching and maybe somebody listening, but it will go nowhere. And so we pray that the Spirit would take the words, the Word of God, and it would put them into the people, into the heart, that we would not only hear it, but, Lord, we would believe it. We would not only believe it, Lord, we would live it, and it would change us from the inside out. We would see you in a greater light. We would have a greater heart for you and a greater desire to serve you and to live for you. So, Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that you would speak to us and move us and glorify yourself because of it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, back in September, I was at a conference in Ocean City, New Jersey, which I believe many of you were there as well. And I heard a pastor say that he believed one of the reasons why there was so much war in the Old Testament was to teach the people of God that living for God was a war. And I liked what he said. I remember saying to my wife, I'm going to use that uh, in one of the sermons when I get to Ephesians, the end of 6, uh, on, in the Christian armor. And, and I did. Uh, and what I did was I went home and I looked up all the times that Israel or Judah was in a war or fought battles against enemies, and I stopped counting when I got to 90. I mean, from the time of Moses to when, when Judah was, was taken captive by Babylon, they fought in excess of 90 different kinds of wars. They fought against the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Ammonites, the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Jebusites, the Moabites, the Midianites, the Philistines, 
Jericho, Ai, Aram, Shechem, Egypt, Cush, uh, Edom, Assyria, and Babylon. And some of these groups, they fought many times over again over the years. So God's people were often in battle, very often in battle. And, and it may well be, it was to show us that we too, as the people of God, and are in the kingdom of God, will be in constant war. And, and not with other nations or people groups, but as Ephesians 6.12 said, that we would be in war against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Paul has told the, uh, the saints at Ephesus, he says, you're in a war and it's against Satan and against his band of demons. And they are aiming to take you down. They're aiming to hamstring you, to crush you, so that you are of no kingdom good. Tempting you so you would sin against God and discredit your testimony and bring shame on the blessed name of Jesus. And they are fierce and powerful foes, which no man can stand against in and of himself. They don't have the strength. And, 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 and that's the charge, by the way, for the Christian, is to stand, to not give in, to not get knocked down or knocked back, not to give up ground to Satan, to not be deceived or to be tricked by the wiles or the schemes of the devil. So we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. But we also need to put on the whole armor of God, which, which he gives to every single Christian. So this is a spiritual battle. Therefore, we need spiritual armor. And Paul uses the analogy of a, of a soldier uh, because figuratively speaking, Christians are soldiers in the Lord's army. And as soldiers, he tells us to put on or to take up six pieces of armor. The first being the belt of truth, which speaks of a life that is built upon faithfulness to the word of God and to the God of the word. Uh, and then there's the breastplate of righteousness, which speaks of a holy life, a life lived in conformity to the word of God. You see, because sin gives Satan the ammo he needs to diminish our fruitfulness and to take us down. But personal holiness, that closes the door on him. Third piece of armor are the shoes of the gospel of peace which speaks about our foundation in Jesus, that we are saved by grace through faith, and we know it. We know it. And then the shield of faith, uh, which speaks of our, our daily faith in God, which causes us to trust him in every circumstance and every season. So we, the just, live by faith, that when the fiery darts of Satan are flying our way, the shield deflects them. And now in verse 17, which we'll look at today, we have the last two pieces of armor, the first being the helmet of salvation, which we'll concentrate on, and the second being the sword of the Spirit, which he says is the word of God. And what I'd like to do today is to look at that helmet of salvation uh, using a two-point outline. And basically and simply, what is or what the helmet of salvation is and how the helmet of salvation protects, what it is and how it protects. And so let's look at what it is. And verse 17, all of verse 17 says is, and take the helmet of salvation. Uh, and... Uh, a helmet was the last piece of armor that a soldier would usually put on. Uh, it, it was, if you will, the final act of readiness uh, in preparation for the battle. And it was vital. It was vital for survival because it protected the head from injury. Uh, and we see this, do we not, with football players, right? Baseball batters, construction workers, they wear hard hats. Motorcycle riders, bike riders, they wear helmets. I read an article that in 2015, over 400 people in America died from head injuries, either riding a bike or a motorcycle and not having a helmet on. 
So helmets protect the most vital part of our bodies, our brains, which are the command centers of our bodies. Now, a Roman soldier's helmet was made of either bronze or like a thick leather with pieces of metal covering it, but it also had straps or, or strips which would protect the chin and the cheeks. Uh, and when the helmet was strapped on, all that was really exposed were the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. Uh, and these helmets were, were pretty heavy. Uh, they were also very hot. Uh, and so what they would do is they would line them with sponge or felt to sort of cushion them and to also absorb the heat. And the only objects that could potentially penetrate them was a hammer or an axe or a large sword. Uh, and, and that's only if it hit it right. So, that, so the helmet's primary function was to deflect, deflect their blows. Uh, and particularly from swords, because that's what soldiers would carry. They would carry these swords. And the swords we're talking about here is not a small sword, as pictured in the Sword of the Spirit, which would probably be a, a sword about between 8 to 18 inches long. Um, but we're talking about a long sword, 3 feet to 4 feet long, which you had to use two hands to even wield it, kind of like a baseball bat. And no soldier would ever go into battle without his helmet. It would be very foolish, kind of like a football player, playing without a helmet, right? He'd be risking serious head injury. And lastly, on top of the Roman soldier's helmet was a crest, which was often adorned with em emblematic figures, uh, either as an ornament or sometimes to even strike fear in the opponent when they saw it. Well, the Christian soldier protects his head, his command center, which is his mind, with the helmet of salvation. You see, Satan is aiming at the mind, trying to influence the thoughts, to get you and I to believe lies and to question God. He wants to screw with our thinking, right? Uh, he, he, uh, and, and because if he can mess with our minds, well, then we, he can get us to slide into sin. We read in John chapter 13, verse 2, at the Last Supper, that the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus. And the heart is equivalent to the mind, to the mind. We also read in Acts 5.3 that Satan filled the heart of Ananias and his wife to lie to the Holy Spirit. So Satan is aiming at our minds, uh, which is why our thought life needs to be protected. Right? That's why we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, to bring every thought, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, put it into prison. Don't let it run around. Why we're told in Philippians 4.8 to think on things that are true and noble and just and pure and of virtue and praiseworthy. These are the things that we should be filling our minds with. So how you think determines in large part how you feel and therefore how you act. Jonathan Edwards said, The ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them constantly govern them. And how true that is, is it not? We live in a day with an ocean of sexual images coming our way, and it's no wonder that adultery and fornication and every other kind of sexual perversion is rampant. Well, now we need to consider what the salvation is in the helmet of salvation. And the Bible talks about, about three aspects of salvation, if you will, in the helmet of uh, the helmet of salvation. And these three aspects, I believe, are the three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future salvation. Right? We were saved from the penalty of sin. That's the past tense. That's called justification. We're being saved uh, from the power of sin in our lives. That's the present tense. 
Uh, and that is called sanctification. And we will be saved from the presence uh, of sin. And that's the future tense, and that's called glorification. All right, so God has rescued us from the penalty of our sins, which is an eternal damnation through faith in Christ's sin-atoning work on the cross uh, and through his righteous life, which is now credited to our account. Uh, and and before, before God saved us, we were like all men. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were children of wrath. And our condition was hopeless, and our condition was helpless before God. Right? We, we, we needed to be saved from the, from the wrath of God, and we couldn't do it. It could only be done by the Savior. And so we read in Matthew 1.21 that Jesus was sent into this world by the Father as a gift to sinners through the womb of the Virgin to save his people from their sins. Therefore, salvation is not a common thing. It's not a common thing. It's not a casual thing, but it's a miraculous thing where God changes the heart, the mind, and the will to love him and to love righteousness and to follow Christ, uh, which before, before he did that, you were greatly opposed to those things. So when you were saved, it was a one-time act by God, and you were saved from the penalty of your sin, which is why we read in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment to those who are in Christ Jesus. And as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, that, that you immediately became a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone is born again, if anyone has is, is been redeemed by God, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And as Romans 5.1 says, you were justified by faith. Therefore, you now have peace with God. Now, present salvation, as I said, means that you're being saved from the power of sin. And Romans 6, 6 says that we are no longer slaves of sin. And, and, and because we died to the old man, the old nature, verse 7 says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Not that we don't sin anymore, or, or not that we're sinless, but we sin less and less and less. And sin is no longer the norm of our lives. We no longer practice it. It's no longer the thing that we practice day in and day out. So we're growing in godliness. We're being sanctified, set apart to look more and more like Christ. Thus sin should be less and less owning us in this life. In fact, Paul said uh, in Romans 6.12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it in its lust. Don't do it. So before we were saved, we obeyed our passions, and for the most part, they were pretty sinful. But now that we are saved and God is living in us, we are spiritually alive. And we know that, 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 that sin shall not have dominion over us, for we are not under the law, we're told, but we're under grace. So we were saved, we are being saved, and lastly, we will be saved, or we have a future salvation. Future salvation. You see, when God saved us, he awakened our souls. Uh, they have been redeemed, uh, but our bodies have not been yet. Our bodies not yet. And they won't be until Christ comes again and raises them from the dead and gives us new glorified resurrected bodies to go with our resurrected glorified souls. This is when our salvation will be completed. And this is what we're waiting for. Romans 8, 11 says... But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. 
will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8.23 says that we eagerly are waiting for the adoption, for the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for it. Paul said in Romans 6.5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And four times in John 6, Jesus said that he would raise us up. He would raise us up on the last day. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, concerning the second coming, he said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and here it is, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. We read in 1 Corinthians 15.52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And lastly, in 1 John 3, 2, we read, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, when Christ comes again, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to get one of those glorified, resurrected bodies, brothers and sisters, just like he has now. So then the putting on the helmet of salvation means that you're able to think about life from the perspective of God's full salvation, past, present, and future. And this will protect you from the assaults of Satan. So what the helmet of salvation is, and secondly, what the helmet of salvation protects and how it protects. Well, the helmet of salvation protects us from the fierce blows of Satan. And if the, if the Spirit has a sword, as we read in verse 17, and we, we read that that's the Word of God, Right? And, and we read in Hebrews 4.12 that it's a double-edged sword, right? then it should not be surprising that Satan also has a sharp double-edged sword of his own, so to speak. And he uses it to try to slice and to dice us with fatal head blows. And his double-edged sword has two main slices and dices, if you will, to it, and they are doubt and discouragement. Doubt and discouragement. And they are why it is necessary for us to have our minds protected by the helmet of salvation. Because doubt and discouragement can paralyze the believer and can make them unproductive and fruitless in the kingdom and rob them of every ounce of joy in Christ. Right? They strip us of things like peace and security that we have in Christ. So when circumstances are hard or, or take a turn for the worse, Satan wants us to doubt God's goodness, to doubt his love for us, to doubt his faithfulness, to doubt his word, which, which, which then shakes the very foundation that we're supposedly standing on. He wants us to doubt the wisdom of God in ordaining and allowing the events of our life to be what they are and even in the church. Why would you do that? Why would you do that to me? He wants you to doubt that you belong in the kingdom and that you're even a Christian. How can you sin like that? And how can you do that over and over again and call yourself a Christian? How can you think the thoughts you think and think you're a Christian? So you think you were saved. You think you were converted. You think you repented. You think you cried out to God to save you. You think those things, but did you really? Now listen, it is a good thing to make your calling and election sure. It is a good thing to test yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. But we need assurance. And if we're saved, we're saved. If we're alive, we're alive. If we're in the kingdom, we're in the kingdom. But Satan wants you to think you're not. 
wants you to be all over the place. Do you really think you're a Christian? Was that genuine repentance? Or was it just your emotions? See, he wants you to think you're a fraud because we still sin and we still struggle and we still don't know things the way we should know them. And we're still frail and we will be. So he wants you to think that you're a fraud, that you lost your salvation. That's like one of the, the most damning doctrines today around is that you could lose your salvation. People, I've known Christians who just, they, they're saved one day, they're not saved the next. And they have to get saved again and they're not saved after they do something else. The Bible emphatically teaches that, that when God saves you, he saves you forever. You're in Christ's hand and no one's going to take you out. When he starts something, he finishes it. And, and, and the Bible is, is chock full of verses that say you can't lose your salvation. And yet, there are those who think you can. And Satan flames that fire. When I was saved for just a few years and I was struggling with things in my life and I'm struggling with my thoughts, I remember I was on a plane to Vancouver to do a job, to do a job there and I was reading a book called The Suffering Savior by a man named Krumach. He was a pastor, a German pastor in the early 1800s. And it was about the last week of Jesus' life and what went on. And I remember reading the, the chapter on Judas and how he had so much light and he had so many advantages. And yet at the end of the day, he was condemned and he was a false convert. And I was convinced when I was reading that, and I was probably saved like three years already, I was convinced when I was reading that, that, that I was an unsaved damn man. I was convinced I was done. And I was weeping and crying out to God to save me for real. So I didn't understand. I didn't understand. I didn't have assurance that I didn't understand what it means to be in the hand of God. So Satan wants you to doubt, doubt your salvation. He wants to, to stab you and cut away at your assurance of salvation. He wants to rattle you and cause you to question your eternal standing. And he wants you to come to the conclusion that you're out of the kingdom and not in the kingdom. And, and, and many have struggled with doubts about God's care, especially when things like their friends turn on them, or a marriage goes sour, or they get fired from a job, or, or people are slandering them and gossiping about them. Or someone they love comes down with a stage four cancer, or they lose a child, or their child embraces homosexuality or lesbianism, or a thousand other things. You see, it's easy to doubt, to doubt God and your salvation when you measure your life to what the ultimate standard is in the, in the scriptures. We all fall short in certain ways. Or when Satan takes a highlighter and he highlights your sins and your failures and he puts them in front of you, in front of your eyes, and he says, look, Look how far short you fall. And then whispers in your ear and says, come on, who are you kidding? The way you struggle, the way you think, the things you've already done, you can't really think you're the real deal, do you? He wants you to believe that you'll never make it to heaven. Or he wants you to look at yourself and think you can make it on your own merit instead of Christ. So one edge of the sword is doubt, and the other edge of the sword is discouragement. And discouragement is when you lose hope. You have loss of confidence. It, it's when you become downhearted or disappointed. And we become discouraged when we labor for the king, and we seek to live for him, and it seems to go nowhere. We seem like we're spinning our wheels, and we're not making a difference in, at all. All the energy and the time and the money and the prayers you put in, and nothing really seems to change. Everything still seems to be the same. It's discouraging when you counsel brothers or sisters and they take absolutely none of your counsel and keep falling into whatever they're falling into. 
And it can be discouraging when, when crowds will show up to a Super Bowl Sunday party and yet just a few will come to a prayer meeting. It can be discouraging to the music team when, when people don't sing. When people don't sing. I mean, we should want to sing, right? We're singing. When Ed gave the invocation, we're here to worship God. We're singing to God. We're going to do that forever, by the way. We want to enjoy it now, right? We're singing a hymn. It can be discouraging when there's division in the church or a saint won't ask for forgiveness or another saint won't give forgiveness. It can be discouraging when people refuse to serve. They don't want to watch the nursery. They don't want to teach children's church. They don't want to help clean up or whatever, whatever's going on. They don't want to help another brother or sister. It can be discouraging when, when people come late to a service. Listen, we're not here for each other. Right? We're not, we're not here to see who's here. We're here to worship the one that we worship privately all week long. It's encouraging when we come together. It's encouraging when we, when we come together to sing together and pray together and praise together. It can be discouraging when you give yourself to others, but they don't give themselves to you. Or when no one calls you or visits you when you're sick or hurting or down. Right? It can be discouraging when, when you want a spouse and it seems like others around you are getting married. Or when you want to have children and you can't and babies are being born all over the place. And listen, I've been discouraged on more than a few occasions. And at time, I, times I think I'm like the king of discouragement. Right? From those whom I have personally discipled. And then they've walked away from the faith totally. They don't even believe these things anymore. The people telling me I don't belong in the pulpit, that I'm hurting their souls. People speak well of me one day. And the next day they're reviling me. Um, or, or having to do damage control because of bad leadership decisions, sometimes my own, most of the times my own, or because of my own inadequacies and my own inabilities and my own sinful tendencies. And I can't tell you how many pastors that I have talked to who tell me they're discouraged, who tell me they're discouraged. I often have to plead with God to help me to look upward and not outward because when I look outward, I, I'm going to go down. And maybe the best example of, of discouragement in the scriptures comes in Psalm 73 with Asaph. He says in verses 2 and 3, But as for me, he says, my feet almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw how easy life was for the wicked, how they seemed to fare well, and they went to their graves without struggles. And then he saw his own struggles, how he tried to, be, to live a godly life, and it was really hard for him. It wasn't easy. And he was envious of the wicked. And he was ready to throw, into the, throw in a towel until, until he went into the temple. And when he went into the temple, what did he see? He saw the sacrifices being offered for sin. And he remembered. He remembered the fate of the wicked. How about Elijah? Elijah experienced a great victory over the prophets of Baal. But then he became extremely discouraged because Jezebel was hunting him down to take his life. And the people of Israel still rejected the God of Israel. And he thought that he was the only believer left in Israel and he just wanted to die. Take me home, Lord. No one else but me who believes in you anyway. So it's easy to be discouraged. And listen, when you're discouraged, it seems like God is absent. We're distant. Like David in Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? It's easy. So like David, you feel alone, you feel defeated, distant from God, and you say, when is this going to end? When are you going to step in, Lord? When are you going to change this? And Satan fuels this, right? And sinks, sinks you into discouragement, beginning you to focus on your problems and your hardships, on your failures, struggles, and difficulties. You see, that's the problem. You're looking at you. And these and other scenarios are the reason we need the helmet of salvation because it deflects doubt and discouragement uh, from controlling our minds. And it does so by reminding us of our salvation, past, present, and future. He saved us, we're being saved, and we have a glorious salvation coming. Brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves that we were saved by the blood of Jesus, that he has redeemed us from the slave market of sin and from the curse of the law. We've got to remind ourselves that we have been crucified with Christ and now he lives in us and we live by faith in him. And that we are saved because it was God's good pleasure to save us. And we are now securely in the hand of the Savior and in the hand of the Father. And therefore, we will never perish. And that we are the bride of Christ. And he won't let anybody mess with his bride. And not only are we saved today, but the grand finale of our salvation is coming. And I believe this is the main thrust of the helmet, uh, is, which is a looking forward to a future hope. Listen to how Paul describes the helmet of salvation in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. He says, But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. So the helmet, or what protects our minds, is the hope of salvation, which is eternal life and glory with Christ. And of course, the hope of salvation speaks of a future hope. Uh, and, and there are lots, lots of scripture which speak, speak of or allude to this future hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter calls the coming resurrection a living hope. A living hope. Then in verse 13, uh, Peter tells us to rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and the grace that's being brought to us is again a glorified body. So rest your hope fully on this. Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, that believers are looking for the blessed hope, that's the hope, and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is a hope that Romans 5, 5 says will not disappoint you. You will not be disappointed with this. This is a hope that Romans 12, 12 says uh, that, that we should rejoice in. This is a hope that 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 says gives us patience, helps us endure. This is a hope Hebrews 6, 19 says is an anchor of the soul. And this is a hope, this is a hope that Hebrews 3, 6, 3, 6 says should give us confidence uh, in what's to come. And, and Ephesians 4.4 4 tells us we were called in one hope, which is the end or completion of our salvation, which Philippians 3.21 says that Jesus will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Uh, and this is hope, uh, and this is a hope that, that, that is not like the world's hope. The world's hope is a wish. I hope the Giants win, win the Super Bowl. 
I'll take the Jets even. <laughs> Give me the Mets for a series. Right? The Knicks. Right? This is a hope that's like a crossing your fingers hopes. Right? There's no reality in that. It's, it's a guess. <laughs> it's a guess. But, but all hope is a certainty. All hope is not a guess. All hope is a living hope. It's a sure hope. Right? It's not a guess. It's anchored, it's anchored in and on the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it is settled in the character and the word of God. And when God makes a promise, he cannot lie. So his promise of future glory is a done deal. It's a given. There's no guesswork on this one. And the fact that Christ has risen and is seated at the right hand of God and has all power and all authority in heaven and on earth, and we have been raised up together with him and sitting in the heavenly places with him gives us great confidence. And that, and that we have a radical change of heart, that he's given us a new heart that now beats for him. Well, that gives us great hope, right? You're not like the old you anymore. You're the new you. That gives you hope. And the fact that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, that gives you hope. It gives us great hope. Therefore, when Satan messes with your mind and brings about doubts and discouragements and you begin to question your salvation, right, or what's to come, you put on the helmet of salvation and you say, no, no, not only am I saved by the blood of Jesus, uh, but I am also kept by the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus will bring me safely home. You put it on. You see, Satan, I already have a dwelling place. I have a dwelling place waiting for me in heaven. So it says Jesus in John 14. And I have a reservation there because my name has been written in heaven and my name is in the Lamb's book of life. And so I'm going there. And Jesus has secured my spot there on the cross and no one can cancel it out. He already said it was finished. So I'm going. And the Lord tells me, in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me from his love. Nothing. And he's told me in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, that eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I don't even know what's coming. It's so great. I know it's great, but I can't even fathom how great it is. And I love him because he first loved me. So Satan, I'm looking for the promised land, and I'm bound for the promised land. I'm bound for it. I'm like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, right, who's on his way to the celestial city where tears and death and pain and suffering and sin, there's going to be no more. And guess what, Satan? You'll be no more too. I'm going where you're not. I'm going to that city. I'm going to that city, Satan, that has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God gives it its light and its lamp is the Lamb. And I'm going to where the worship of God is pure and undefiled and not tainted by sin. So heaven and glory is an amazing motivator, right? A tremendous protector against doubt and discouragement. Listen, our time here is really short. And what's coming, well, that's forever. And the hope of our future with Christ and glory helps us to see the big picture and to put things into perspective here and now. It helps us to look past the struggles that we have now and to look to the wonders to come. When you know what the end will be, 
and you know that it's wonderful and glorious, it helps you to get there, right? It's like a young couple who are engaged to be married, and they already have a date on the calendar. They're ready to go. Uh, and they think much about that day, and they talk much about that day, and they prepare for that day. They even dream about that day. Uh, and, and, and that hope helps them to weather the rough spots or maybe the disagreements they would have until they get to that day. I remember back in the year 2007, uh, I went to India with a brother, and we were going to uh, teach pastors and to preach the gospel to crowds of Muslims and, uh, uh, and Hindus. And I was excited to do that. I was looking forward to that. What a privilege to do that. But in order to get there, I had to sit on, sit on a plane for 13 hours, seated between two very large guys. And, and not only did they take up all of their seats, but they took up some of mine too. And, and I was super uncomfortable. I couldn't move. I was squashed in there like a sardine for 13 hours. But what kept me going was remembering where we were going and what we would be doing. So the hope of preaching and teaching the gospel helped me to persevere and to look forward and to weather my uncomfortable situation. So because what's coming is so good and so amazing, it ought to beat down the doubt and the discouragement, right? Well, the Christian life is great now and a delight to the heart now, but the wicked one wants to derail it, wants to derail us. He wants to make us lose heart. Right? To question the lover of our souls. He wants us to throw in the towel, to throw up the white flag. I quit. But when we put on the helmet of salvation, we see the big picture again. We're reminded of how it all ends. And that Christ is victorious over all. And we share in his victory with him. So we can't get caught up in the day, in the nitty-gritty of the here and now. We can't allow lies and accusations and arrows of doubt and discouragement free and easy access to our minds. We can't do that. God calls us to be armed and protected with his helmet of salvation. And when we are, when we are, we will say like John in this, the very second to last verse in the Bible, we'll be able to say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Well, let me close by leaving you with three thoughts about the helmet of salvation. And the first is this. Don't leave home without it. Don't leave home without it. Back in the 1970s, there was a famous ad, ca ad campaign for American Express. Most of you are not old enough to remember it. Uh, and that was, don't leave home without it. Well, not only should we not leave home without our helmets of salvation on, but quite honestly, we shouldn't get out of bed without them on. We need to wear the knowledge of our salvation around our heads to protect us against the assaults of Satan. Right? Uh, when we, 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 we wake up, we need to remind ourselves, I'm a child of God. And, and I've been saved by Christ. And he's coming back for me because I'm his bride. And he's bringing me to himself. Therefore, brothers and sisters, don't go into the battlefield with your heads unprotected because your eyes are going to see things which will be tempting, but you must not let them penetrate your head. And your ears are going to hear things that may entice you to sin, but you must not let them penetrate your head. You must let the helmet of salvation deflect them. And you may even think thoughts that will beguile you and may beguile you, but you must not let them penetrate your head. Remember this, that lots of things are aiming at your head, and the helmet of salvation is what will keep you standing. Amen? Amen. Secondly, how do you put it on? And how do you keep it on? How do you put on the helmet of salvation? How do you keep it on? And I think there are a few ways we do this. First is by growing in our understanding of our salvation. We need to understand the, the theology of our salvation. 
who saved us, how we were saved, what we were saved from, and what's keeping us saved. All right, we need to do that. We need to grow in understanding that. And in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, Paul lays down very clearly there the theology of our salvation. That God elected us before time began. It's a thing God did. God chose us. We didn't figure this out. We didn't wake up one day and say, gee, I want to get saved. All right? God saved. He chose us to save us and to make us his. He predestined us to adoption, bringing us into the family as sons and daughters through Christ. And Christ has come and redeemed us Bought us back, bought us out of slave, the, the slavery of sin, and brought us into the kingdom of God. And, and, and the Holy Spirit has come and awakened us or made us alive and brought us to life. And he's the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. And that we were saved by grace through faith, and that's all the gift of God. So we need to, we need to understand our salvation. So helpful if we grow in that. Also, we need to put on the helmet of salvation by continually being thankful to God for saving us. It's the kind of thing, I've been saved for 28 years, you can kind of just, you know, same old, same old, yeah, I'm saved. But it should never lose its, 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 its awe factor that I'm a saved man, I'm a saved woman. I was in the, in the gutter, spiritually speaking. I was dead as a doornail. I didn't want God. I didn't want the things of God. I was, I was happy with sin. I was blinded by the God of this world, and I was just going with the course of this one. I was okay to do it. And he saved me, right? It should always be fresh. Why we take the Lord's table is to remind us sort of the nuts and bolts of our salvation, what God has done for us in Christ, that he saved us. Saved us from what? Saved us from his own wrath that we justly deserve. And he saved us because Christ took it for us. Right? He took the wrath for us and then gave us the right standing we need in order to be called holy. And that ought to make us thankful all the time, amen? We ought to be the most thankful people in the world, by the way. Right? People ought to see us and say, there's something, guy's a joyful guy. That lady's very joyful. And then they need to know why, and you need to tell them why. Right? And also by renewing our minds. We, we put it on by renewing our minds through the word, believing and following what he says over what we think and what the world says. Well, my last thought I want to leave you with is, is to the unbeliever for those who are not saved. And that is that you cannot wear the helmet of salvation, nor do you have the hope of salvation. Uh, if you are unsaved this day, you may have on the helmet of the hope of prosperity or the helmet of the hope of success or the helmet of the hope of pleasure, but you do not have the hope of salvation. And the reason you don't is because you're not saved, you have not been born again, you are not a genuine Christian. And what you need to be protected from is the wrath of God that he will pour out on you for your sins. And I'm telling you, this is no joke. And this is no old wives' tale or a scare tactic, but a just and a holy God will punish you for every single sin you've ever committed because all your sin is committed against him. It goes against the holy lawgiver. It goes against the righteous one. And your only hope, and by the way, you do have a hope. Your only hope, your only protection from God's wrath is to trust in Christ. Trusting that when he was on the cross, he took every divine blow that you deserve. Trusting that your sins were nailed up there when he was up there, and the Father punished him for every one of your sins instead of punishing you for them. And because of that, the debt you owe God is cleared. It's wiped away. 
And now he accepts Christ's work on your behalf. And so what you need to do is trust Christ. Believe in Christ. Turn from sin and turn to Christ and be saved. And the Bible says that today, not tomorrow, next month, next year, because none of us know we have any of those, today is the day of salvation. So the question is, will you come to Christ? Will you see that you are a sinner and a lawbreaker, and God is going to deal with that? God would be unjust to just sweep your sin under the rug and let you slide by. He won't do that. He's holy, and he will exact punishment for sin. But if you trust Christ today, if you cry out to Christ today, if you receive Christ today, then you can be assured that your sins were taken care of at Calvary's cross. And now you are accepted in the beloved. Amen? And now you have a helmet of salvation to take you all the way into glory. Trust in Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your great mercy and because of your great love, you are pleased to save sinners and to make them your children. I pray for those who know you today that you would help us, help them to not fall into doubt and discouragement, to anchor on what is true and right, to believe that Christ paid it all and their salvation is secure in him, and that they would be fruitful and faithful all the days here until you take them to glory. And Lord, for those sitting here today who are not saved, maybe they think they're a Christian because they're born into a Christian home or they've made a profession or they were baptized, but they have not truly been born again. Would you press them hard? Would you open their eyes to see their true state? And Lord, would you drive them to the cross where they could find true life? And would you do that for your glory? We ask it in Jesus' name.